Hello, and welcome to the 2010s. I'm Nathan Stevens, your host, and if you fill out the connect the dots on the cover of Teeth Marks, you'll find one of America's greatest modern songwriters. I don't say that lightly. S.G. Goodman's newest album, Teeth Marks, is a swelling, compelling, utterly entrancing combination of indie rock, Americana, country, and folk that takes us through tales of addiction and the powerful, emotional, and overwhelming forces of love that feel like a hurricane or a tornado ripping both through your town and your heart. We sat down with SG and talked about the album here on the 2010s. Um, I, I guess I wanted to start with the fact that I've noticed both in the interviews and kind of what happens lyrically on the album, you talk about love as almost like an elemental force. It's almost like dealing with the fallout of a hurricane or a flood more than just, oh, I'm in love or I'm dealing with heartbreak. There's all these references that make it feel like you're picking up the pieces afterwards and it does sound like a natural disaster just kind of rolled through. And I was wondering about the lyrical content behind that and how you came to that kind of motif. Well, I mean, you know, love is an action. So if action happens, there's either good or bad consequences, you know, and I think it's easier to describe that in a way that is uh, when you're writing, um, I believe writing in scenes, um, for the most part. Um, so using kind of either, I, I always like to use Southern imagery when I can, um, because that's what I experience every day. And I think it holds a lot of weight. It's also something people can, uh, imagine in their minds, you know? So I think that it's on teeth marks in particular, you know, it's not all disaster, but it's more, you know, uh, there are good and bad consequences to experience in love of any form. And so it's not just a romantic, you know, exclusive form of love that I'm talking about throughout the album. Um, and that's, you know, kind of what I wanted to capture, if I could. Well, yeah, because there was another part which was kind of unevenness in love in terms of, obviously in terms of relationships, um, you know, the opening track of unrequited love or just not quite being at the same level as infatuated as a partner. But there's also, if you were someone I loved, and talking about um, larger governments, pharmaceutical, all that stuff, kind of issues with the opioid crisis of like, oh, I could help this person, but I just do not care enough to do that. And it felt like there was um, a bit of an overlap there between uh, this micro level of I'm in a relationship or I really like this person and they don't like me enough. And then we go to the government or certain entities don't care enough about these individual people to help them. Yeah, and that song, even though lyrically – you know, the one true verse in there speaks of the opioid crisis specifically. The real driving force behind that song is what you're getting at, which is this truth about human experience, which is oftentimes we have to have a first-hand experience with tragedy or, 
you know, something or, or love or whatever in order for it to be real to us. And our policies are formed because of that. Um, our medical institutions were more than likely the history of how they came to be at a particular university or something were more than likely formed because a family with wealth, um, you know, and, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, I'm not critiquing the fact that, you know, I'm thankful that that we have institutions that have devoted money and time and resources to researching certain illnesses and things and, and have created these great institutions where even more research can happen. But what I'm getting at is that it took more than likely an affluent family to have a child with a rare illness or someone they love be impacted by something in order for them to say, hey, this is a need. Even if maybe one of their neighbors or someone in society had already experienced this tragedy, that's the particular thing that caused them to act. And that's true. It goes far beyond uh, the opioid crisis. It, it has to do with how we are moved to act in any way. And that was really the driving force behind that song and what I was interested in in human behavior, you know? Yeah, and then following it with you were someone I loved, which is so much more intimate, has like the Southern imagery, like you're talking about, about a Kildee uh, mama, you know, being out protecting eggs. Um, that sort of situation makes it all the more clear that there's like no empathetic connection. And then suddenly this incredibly intimate song where it's you and the listener and that's it. Um, mm -hmm. And I, uh, so I was wondering on that for when did it, the idea come about to be like, all right, we're going to do this song and it's literally just going to be me and a couple of, I don't know, reverb effects on my voice well <clears throat> i was driving home from the studio and i happened to be by myself which was rare for that situation i had to finish up some stuff by myself and for a long time you know the killity bird has always been a part of my childhood and um, my dad's a farmer and so they would be on turn rows having nest in the gravel and my dad was like mark their little nest with a flag or something so he wouldn't run over them. But I've always, that that idea of, of what, how a killdee acts and things have, has been in my head for a very long time. But when it came to If You Were Someone I Love, the song, you know, on, on vinyl, it's one song mm -hmm. in its entirety, which is how I intended it to be. But because the world we live in was streaming digital, <laughs> I had to... Uh, to separate them for tracking and I intended that that song was very difficult to write for me and it took many years to write because I was never satisfied with whether or not I had said everything that I that I needed to say that I did the subject matter justice and so I found it fitting to give the person most impacted, you know, the one left out and, and not experiencing or, or, or having the consequence of someone not experiencing 
empathy and love uh, to have the last say. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, and I think that as far as stylistically where, where that came from, you know, I come from a very long tradition of uh, words mattering and, and your voice being the main instrument. And I wanted the listener to hear, you know, my mouth smacking. And it was getting back to just the human element of of the song. And that's, that's all I, that's what I felt like the song was calling for. And that was the purpose to bring people back to, Hey, we're dealing with human beings here, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not, not the fluff. Like when you strip it down, when you strip down the circumstances, you're dealing with another human. And I think that was symbolic of that, um, kind of need for the song. Yeah, I mean, it reminded me a little bit, like, th- there's a hymn quality to it a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, my my folks come from a tradition of doing shape singing, and um, that's, you know, just the voice being very, very powerful when you cut it away from all other instruments is, um, it's a, it, it's a, it can be a, a kind of a sucker punch in a good way, emotional sucker punch, you know? For sure. And I mean, I don't come from shape note singing, um, but I have experienced it before. I mean, I would say that at one time I was raised in church and everything. I'm sure that that was a part of that tradition. But um, yeah, it is it is a very old tradition and style that I is so deeply ingrained in me that, you know, it's going to come out and at some point in my songwriting, probably every record I ever do. How often? Go ahead, go ahead, sorry. Oh, that was all I was going to (laughs) say. How often do you deal with uh, or wrangle with perfectionism, um, just getting in the way sometimes of finishing a song? Well, I would say um, anytime I sit down to write, and I think the way I deal with that is because I don't hardly ever force a song. I believe it'll go about its business Mm -hmm. and will reveal to you what it's supposed to be over time. You know, a lot of people, if they were a witness to my process, would say, well, this girl doesn't write very often, but um, what happens is, you know, I'm very intentional with my lyrics and the music and I will keep notes and keep thoughts or voice recordings for years and years. And so I think the way it normally comes to me, some songs come in in a span of 15 minutes and, you know, that's not particularly rare, but more rare than, than the whole like piecemealing a song over the course of many years. I think that I internally have an editing system to where if I forget something, then I just believe that it wasn't meant to stay. Mm-hmm. And and I'll chase something for a long time. And you could you could say that that's perfect, trying, you know, like perfectionism 
Um, but I think with uh, – I just have a a really strong belief that when you put out a group of work, even though you're not in charge of how someone interprets it, you have to sing it every night. And if you're embarrassed of a line – or you think you could have done it better, then why rush it? You're going to have to sit with it and be a karaoke star for possibly years or forever. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Are you a so, note, notes app and voice memos kind of songwriter? 100%. I have a lot of journals. I'm not a great journal keeper. I mean, I've got notebooks. If I remember to bring one, it's not like I have one precious notebook that I write down in. I'm a legal pad girl. <laughs> I don't I don't see very well and I like the yellow legal pads and I like to use a a blue pen on them. And um you know, I have probably fifty of them that I have I'll go through sometime and be like, Oh well there's where that went to. It's not in any way organized. It's just what I can grab quick enough so the note system on the phone and definitely the voice recording, which I find more useful, um, I have hundreds and hundreds of them, and they're not labeled, which is a pain in the ass. But I can generally think about the date where something came to me. Like, I know if I went back on my phone, the one of the first piano lines of a, of a song or whatever off my old album, um, the way I talk, the little guitar riff throughout it, that's on my phone in 2017. I know that, you know. But I don't, I'd have to go through every voice recording in 2017. And how many of those are there? Oh, I have probably like 500 or more voice recordings on my phone. And some of them, I, I wish I could, I've, I've thought about on tour trying to go through them all and erasing me humming nonsense. Or sometimes there's little voice recordings on there that I'm in a public place and you can't hear my, I can't hear myself. Like I, there, it would be useful for me to go through and cut some fat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's always curious to hear who's, um, who's still uh, got to be pen to paper and who's sheerly on notes app or whatever in between, just whatever tools yeah. are at, at, at the beck and call of the writer. Yeah, I'm definitely both. Um, and, you know, sometimes when I'm frustrated with a song, I will typically go to pen and paper. Um mm-hmm just because it, the physicalness of it, I think, sometimes helps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask, you did a, a split single and duet with an, another artist we actually interviewed on the site a couple of years ago. You worked with uh, Peter Warren um, uh-huh. on All I Need. Um, and I was, I, I was wondering about... How do I put it? This kind of whitewashing of Americana folk country history that seems to be going on, especially within mainstream radio stuff of like Peter Warren singing about Anthropocene. You talk about unions. You talk about queer love, all this stuff. And it feels like 
that's always been a part of Americana. There's always been protest songs. There have always been queer singer-songwriters. But it feels like within the mainstream culture, there seems to be a push away of like, no, nah, that didn't happen. We're not looking at that. Well, could you get a little more? I, I don't really. What exactly <laughs> just, out of that are you wanting me to comment on? More along the lines of, um, I guess, there seems to be a cool upswell over the last couple of years of, of more progressive, I suppose, singer-songwriters, country acts, but it feels like basically impossible for most of them to break into a mainstream, uh, you know, get on the radio or anything outside of college radio, get on the radio or anything like that. Um, yeah. and, I, and I'm feeling like, what what do you think would make uh, have to happen to make that kind of dam break, or it, would it take something that would upter- have to upturn kind of the country industry itself? Well, one... Really, you're talking about business and art, and even in that is a little complicated. Like, for instance, the song that Peter and I wrote together, Mm -hmm. that is about as generic of a track and cutesy little thing as you could do, and it was fun to write, and that's not art, that's craftsmanship, Mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. And, And I'm not one to even really shit on too much popular music because at some point you know i would say all right maybe i don't look at this as like kind of like looking at a book that's fun to read or a book that you think is high literature it's like you know it can still just be fun to do and fun to write and people remember it or whatever um and i think there is value in that i like to just enjoy things you know and Mm -hmm. But when it comes to Americana and what you're experiencing with why aren't certain tracks, you know, on the radio, it's like my song Space and Time, that's over four minutes. Mm -hmm. One of the last major hits that I can think of that's over four minutes, over five minutes even, is like one of Sheryl Crow's songs, okay? That was Mm -hmm. allowed to be played on the radio at that time. But... Americana, the genre itself, hasn't existed for very long. It was really created, they created a radio playlist, a chart system that can go into, you know, the billboard charts. Mm -hmm. So it allowed for artists on the fringes where they didn't know where to put them, basically. It's like a, you know, Lucinda Williams is the queen of Americana. Mm-hmm. But she didn't start in Americana because it wasn't it didn't exist. But it um, it's a genre where people are either too much or too little of something. But now they have a place kind of to reside. But it's problematic in itself. Like I would say, the album I just created is not really Americana. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of is in the definition of, like, it's too this or too little of something. But it's more of a indie rock album than a lot of my tracks, even on the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as, like, why artists like myself cannot get on mainstream radio, a lot of it is very simple. The BPM of our tracks don't 
go into the formula that they require new artists to uh, adhere by on mainstream radio or it, you know, there's a lot of money when it comes to radio mm-hmm. to go through a, a radio um, campaign on a mainstream top 40 cycle. There's thousands and thousands of dollars behind that. All right. More mm-hmm. than likely artists, unless they had have had a large career outside of Americana and then are writing Americana, they don't have the budget to do that. It doesn't, you have to sell yourself as a top 40 artist to the radio host to, for them to say like, okay, this is, I'm going to put this into rotation. It, there's a lot of business aspect that, that put a ceiling on artists like myself where I believe, you know, who know a good song is a good song and if it's got a good hook people will remember it if i did have 3 weeks on top 40 radio it's you never know a song might pop off you mm. know but the that will not happen unless i had a insane out like uh, just blow up song on TikTok where there's so many people that have organically found that track to where radio hosts are being bombarded to put it on. There's no way most Americana artists with the system itself will ever be allowed to have a radio campaign into that world. It's mm-hmm. not the way the music business works, you know, Mm-hmm. And it and it's kind of interesting because it's kind of like a Jason Isbell, all right? Mm-hmm. Jason Isbell has, you know, his songs have been covered by mainstream country artists. Lucinda Williams, her songs have been covered by mainstream country artists. Um, they still won't be on Top 40 Country Radio, even though the, the Top 40 Country mainstream itself have been and will continue to be heavily influenced and benefit from their art. You know? Yeah. Um, oh, that's, that's interesting. I I used to work in, uh, well, still do work in radio. It's uh, public radio, but I used to work at a, a country and rock station out in Great Falls, Montana, and the chart stuff usually was just absolutely bewildering to me, so that's interesting to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can even find, you know, I'm trying to think of the man's name uh, who c- helped create the Americana chart. Um, my godmother manager, Tracy Thomas, helped form the Americana genre. Like, there were people that were like, okay, there's so much good music um, that's not being heard. Let's make it to where this is, you know a respected thing into itself. But now, you know, and that's awesome. It's all, I mean, obviously, I'm, I benefit from it. Um, but then when you get into the Americana world, where I have a radio single out right now, that when people hear it, they don't think Americana. Mm-hmm. 
when they listen to All My Love Is Coming Back To Me. But that's going to be the only chart, unless it's college radio, hot a- maybe hot AC or something. Like, that's going to be the only chart that I'm really allowed to have, like, to be on or to present my song to these radio DJs. Because top 40 people, you know, it's a way more controlled system with DJs. They don't really get to choose, like, an independent company like KEXP or something, what's on heavy rotation at their station. hmm You know? Yeah. Um sort of you were mentioning kind of the cross section of art and business as being part you know a massive part of that and figuring that out on um work till i die you have the at the towards the end you have the cross section of prayer and the company of replacing you know holy symbols with instead giving prayers and your body and your thoughts to uh, a company instead um mm-hmm. and i was just wondering for you when you were starting to write that of like putting this kind of hymnal refrain in it, but then twisting it to the company. Um, where where did that originally come from? Well, the song itself is a co-write between me and my former bandmate Matt Rowan. So that is really I wrote the ending you're referring to. That was all me. But I heard that song years before and loved it, and it really spoke to me. And he let me um, tweak it and, and do some writing on the track to kind of more formalize the message. And the refrain you're talking to at the end, my brother um, would say a prayer exactly like that before Sunday meals. Um, and I just kind of wanted to poke at, you know, what that song says to me as a whole is the individual is aware of how strapped they feel, you know, um, it, I, you know, right now more unions are forming since, uh, by like, you know, percentage more than any other time other than right after the great depression. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it, in different circumstances, right? It's kind mm-hmm. of like this the argument of, you know, like when Mitch McConnell says stuff about the debt relief for students with their student loans, when he went to college, like a year or a semester of college was maybe three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, and now that's not the case. And it's kind of the same thing with workers with living expenses on percentage is much different of a situation right now. It costs more for people in a way to unionizing to go on strike right now than it did in possibly any other time in history. And and what's crazy is, um, you know, with that refrain, I would say that I was trying to get at the fact that you can know that you're you're worth more and that you're giving your body and your mind to the system um but you're also meant to kind of just hold complete reverence for the company that's given you you know a a barely living wage or whatever because there's 
you know, the options of different jobs or, or different circumstances are really hard. But I thought it would still be powerful for people to realize that, you know, especially recently, I think more people are vocal about the fact that they're aware of the situation they're in. Um, so kind of like that. Yeah, I have, you kind of poked at it. I have noticed this kind of ongoing political thing of like, aren't you thankful we're giving you a job? Aren't you thankful that like we're barely paying you minimum wage? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's weird to have this reverence towards something where it's like, it's a job. I'm doing this so that I can pay rent maybe. And then that be turned around into like, actually you should be thanking us even more, even though you may not like the job, like us giving you money for breaking your body or not having a good time is actually a gift to you. It feels like sometimes. Yeah. And that's where I think this odd, you know, this kind of odd, you know, complexity within that with, with people's situations. It's kind of like the railroad systems right now. There's been $5 billion in profit in recent years. And, you know, the the companies have been taking away certain benefits from their, their health care. Um, they're not re-upping their contracts. Even though there's massive amounts of properties or uh, profits, it's like, um, well, we're still providing you this opportunity. And, you know, it's... There's just got to be a bit of a reckoning with that, and it's kind of like philosophy in general. I think philosophy doesn't always lead to solutions, but I have found that there are there is purpose and power in acknowledging and 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 analyzing the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first step, and so you know I'm not providing any solution to the person in that situation, um, but rather acknowledging it right now. Yeah. And your your degree's in philosophy, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, I have a bachelor's in philosophy, so yeah. it's not like I'm an expert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering if there's anything you, you've been reading recently that um, – any books or specific writers that um, – have been kind of coming up that may have influenced your lyrics or just kind of some of the thought process on this? Not, not really. I mean, I would say uh, a writer, a philosopher years ago, and I have, I did, I did poke into some of his books um, over the pandemic, a philosopher by the name of Emmanuel Levinas who believes that um, ethics are first philosophy, that when we come into contact, when we come into the presence of another person, the other, that is that is when we are called into ethics. And the same thing of like, you know, having to acknowledge someone's humanity and that's where everything stems from by the fact that we are not alone on this planet and it's funny because I think when it comes to work until I die you know 
and, and Emmanuel Levinas, you know, he's coming from a long history of looking at that idea of the other, you know, which you could say came from like Hegel or something like the master slave dialectic, all this stuff. And I would say that that's interesting because right now we're dealing, I mean, and forever, like this is obviously, if they're talking about it, this was years and years ago, but forever we're, we're dealing with this constant push and pull of being seen. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I mean, that also, I'm thinking a lot about dead soldiers too in that because you've got not just talking about another person, but also kind of effigies of that person. Like there's a funeral pyre. And uh, if I'm remembering the other interview correctly, that came from cleaning up bottles in the yard and someone remarking with each bottle. It was like, this is another dead soldier, right? Uh Uh-huh. Where it's kind of like, you're not directly dealing with another person, but you're kind of looking at the wreckage of another person or something that like really, you know, weighed heavily upon them. And that's also you're seeing them almost in post or seeing a ghost of them. And I'm wondering if that, you know, does that have a similar effect of seeing somebody, you know, seeing the ramifications of someone's actions or someone's addiction? Yeah. I mean, I would say there are a lot of songs written from the perspective of an addict um, and not as many written from the perspective of the witness and the toll that takes on people. But also I feel like I was very careful in my lyrics to make sure that the subject, um, the person struggling with addiction was made known that, that they're being seen right now. And in fact, like, you know, when I say, Ain't I the one gathering all the dead soldiers from your floor? Like, that's how close you are to the wreckage, you know? Mm-hmm. So, it is a, it is like a push and pull of, this is my experience from being a witness. And by the way, like, you are being witnessed and cared about. Yeah. And... I mean, that's another one of what you kind of said at the beginning of this. It's not just romantic love. There are all these marks of different love and opening yourself up and being vulnerable to other people. And sometimes that can be extremely, you know, outside of a breakup or whatever, there can be these extremely painful moments of like, I care about you and you going through addiction by proxy, you know, just seeing all of these things happen um, because I want you to get better or I've been here for you. Um, hurts me as well. And yeah, that's just, mm-hmm. Dead Soldiers is absolutely my favorite song on the on the record. It just oh, thank it you. Just, just just destroys me in a good, good way. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, it's a very special one for me. Yeah. Um I I had kind of a musical question because I think my favorite like little musical moment on this is on when you say it, you'll I think I guess it's kind of the pre-chorus. You'll end your line, and then this beautiful guitar part will come in. And it almost sounds like you're doing like a little vocal duet with the guitar. Like there's conversation between your vocals and that guitar line. I was just wondering how that kind of popped up in the studio with your with the your band. Well, 
the person who's playing that part, his name is Matt Rowan, and I've played music with him for 12 years. And Matt, you know, I have described him many times as kind of like a little bit of a musical soulmate. And I think when you're in an intimate situation or writing intimate songs, it's really important to um, have that kind of trust and chemistry with someone who understands your voice so well that they can also add to it. And um, Matt has always been able to interpret my needs for a song better than any musician that I've ever played with. Um, And I think that just really is more of a representation of our relationship and also, you know, his undeniable talent. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, is sure. he the one that also goes by the name Rich Ruth on his records? No, so Mikey Rich Ruth, um, he is now my guitar player, so Matt has um, moved on to other things in life and um, we're not playing music with each other anymore. But Mikey is is now my uh, touring guitarist. Oh, okay. I got those two mixed up because I actually did check out the Retreat record because uh, it just came out this month. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, not it's what like I was It's a wild ride. <laughs> no. Yeah. He's psychedelic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's uh, doing really well. Yeah, it got good coverage. And it, yeah, it's a, like you said, it's a wild ride. Um, mm hmm. I just had two more questions. Um, one's not about actually any of the songs. Uh, it was about the album artwork, both for the album itself and kind of the singles, including my favorite, which is the Connect the Dots possum. For, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, that one's just great. Like, someone's going to get that as a tattoo. It's just great. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was wondering uh, what – I, I, I'm just not sure. Did you – how much uh, creative uh, control you had over the artwork and what – um, whether that was your artwork or you're working with somebody else, why have the connect the dots and this kind of almost, I don't know. I see all those album artworks and I feel like you could shove them into a little prayer candle. Like they would be the outside, like little sh- wrapper on a prayer candle. Oh, it's coming. I'm going to have a patron saint of the dollar store candle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I really am. Yeah. I'm also going to do uh Sunday fans, you know, those funeral fans, yeah. the little, cardboard ones you wave at yourself <laughs> i'm gonna do those that's all gonna come probably later this year but uh the artist that i worked with her name is pearl um and she goes by pearl jr online and she's just amazing and she did a t-shirt for me and i was leaving texas last year on tour and it came time for you know, my manager to give me the call to say, hey, you need to kind of decide on what you're envisioning for artwork. And, um, you know, with albums that I've done previously, I've always kind of focused the artwork on like an old family photo or something, the kind of pastoral look. And with the theme of the album and the way that I sequenced the songs, um, I feel like I have created or at least hope to have created 
a group of work that would allow the listener to put the pieces together themselves about the impact of of love in their in their life and I even end the album with how that resides in your own body and its personal responsibility to to delve through all that so I felt like the connecting the dots this physical personal um responsibility to make the whole picture clear um was a good way to do that and so I um as far as certain images, Pearl's actually scared of uh, possums, so that was a little hard for her to do. <laughs> and she told me, she told me that's why she put the babies on there because it made it a little softer for her. I think possums are amazing animals and very cute, but some people find them really gross looking and ugly. Um, but you know, it it's another animal that's just you know I saw a possum in my yard last night. I just think that. Um, you know, I always want to represent where I'm from and share that with people. Um, but as far as, like, why the Connect the Dots, I would say what I said earlier was, was kind of the driving force behind that. And so I present, I, I asked her if she thought that was possible and gave her some ideas for um, artwork. And it came to life. I'm proud of it. That's great. Um, yeah, last question. When did you know that Keeper of the Time had to close the record? Who knows, man? I mean, <laughs> I would say just the way, uh, you know, I've, I had that song for probably a couple, like, started about at least a year and a half before I would have recorded it. And I knew it, sometimes when, most of, most of the time when I write a song, I hear all of the music. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I produce or at least co-produced all my own albums. And one way I do pre-production is to get a group of people together, play together, record it, pick the pieces that I'm like, okay, this is what I'm hearing here, make notes and go from there. But I like the way that song explodes into affinity and um and i think that was kind of another instance of where music was getting to be a, a word too mm-hmm. and um you know keeper of the time is very much lyrically uh kind of a bookend of another song i wrote called space in time mm-hmm. and so um i just felt I just knew pretty early on that that would be the album closer. Song, song of the self, take a little piece of pie with a bust your mouth. You make the rich more rich, and all won't be you. Pennies for your diamond, crumbs at you. Song, song of the self, take a little piece of pie with a bust your mouth. You make the rich more rich, and all won't be you. Pennies for your diamond.